You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast where we interview upstarts and keep our finger on the pulse of technology, innovation, and business. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Eli Khan, VP of Product Management for a cloud security company, Sentinel One. And before that, uh, he was the co-founder of Squirrel, the threat hunting company, which was acquired by Amazon and rebranded as Amazon Detective, where he wore many hats as a startup co-founder. I'm excited to bring Eli on to talk about his experience as a startup co-founder and then as a corporate executive, and finally share his thoughts on common trends to look out for today in cloud security. Now, with that said, Eli, welcome to the show. Awesome. Really glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. Um, Yeah, so we're excited to learn more about you. Let's start with your background. It was actually a lot, <laughs> you know, preparing for these interviews, I, I, I kind of looked through LinkedIn and uh, I spent a lot more time on your profile than I spend on most. Uh, you've worked in many environments doing a variety of jobs. So, you know, take me and the listeners through your entrepreneurial journey. Um, typically, I start those with, uh, you know, what were you doing when you finished college? But, you know, <laughs> you, you've been doing this for a while. You've been doing a lot for a long time. So, you know, choose your own starting point wherever it makes the most sense here. All right. Sounds good. So let's see here. I think I'll start with actually, yeah, my first job out of college, I decided to move down to DC uh, and join a managed consulting firm uh, called Booz Allen Hamilton. And I landed in DC October 2001. And suddenly everything in the DC area was focused around Homeland Security just a month after 9-11. And at the, at the consulting firm Booz Allen Hamilton, I actually ended up working on a project to help construct the, the Department of Homeland Security. The government hired Booz Allen Hamilton to try to make sense of the 22 different departments and agencies that needed to be melded together into a department. And you know, I had a really cool opportunity to be uh, one of the first consultants on the ground there to try to stitch those pieces together. Uh, from there, uh, I had an opportunity to, to join the federal government as a civil servant at, at a relatively senior level and uh, jumped at that opportunity and went into TSA to, to join and to start a, a new office there, which was a strategic innovation and risk management office, basically trying to find out innovative ways to reduce security risks associated with our transportation systems. One of the risks that, uh, that I worked on was uh, something that actually a blogger had pointed out. You know, at the time, there was this, and there still is, a, a no-fly list and uh, a terrorism watch list associated with it. And there was a way to subvert that by basically using Photoshop to change your name on your boarding pass, <laughs> which is a, a pretty scary, simple way to subvert, you know, a government system that, you know, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on. So, um, you know, I worked with the airline industry to come up with a way to embed a digital signature inside a barcode. And that digital signature basically is a hash of all of your personal information that's then encrypted and then decrypted uh, by the airline or by TSA when you check in. And by decrypting it and matching up the public key and the private keys and, uh, and looking at the hash, they could ensure that the, your name on your, on your boarding pass 
was the same name embedded in your barcode, which is then tied to the terrorist watch list. Anyways, uh, worked on that project and suddenly I was seen as a cybersecurity expert, although I definitely didn't feel like one. I you know, wasn't uh, trained in cybersecurity, didn't even have a computer science background, but you know, because we had the words uh, digital encrypted signature in, uh, in my resume um, that at least somewhat qualified me to working on cybersecurity things and ended up moving into the Department of Homeland Security, working on cybersecurity issues, and then uh, got nominated to do a stint through the White House at the National Security Council staff as a director for cybersecurity, uh, working on things like the National Cyber Incident Response Plan and new cyber legislation and national strategies for cybersecurity, which was uh, uh, an amazing opportunity. I'm trying to get an idea of the timeline. This is like, mm, 2008, 2009, around there? Yeah, yeah. By the time I made it to the White House, it was uh, 2008, uh, the beginning of the Obama administration at that point. Okay. Yeah, point point being that like cybersecurity then was not like cybersecurity today, right? Like you are you were kind of a trailblazer with this um, encryption hash, right? So it was it definitely felt relatively new. I mean, you know, folks have been you know obviously there was the the idea of cybersecurity out there, but for government, it was really the time when we first started getting our act together and started really investing in it and building out a cybersecurity function at the Department of Homeland Security. And really elevating it to the one of the top risks that the nation faced, and investing in it as a top risk that the nation faced. So yeah, it was it was definitely a transitional period in terms of cybersecurity being elevated onto the national agenda. Mm-hmm. Yep, thanks. I just wanted the kind of the, the context there of, of what was going on around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, I had a really cool experience at the White House, you know, sort of a pinch yourself type moment every time you walked in the door there, like, wow, I I really work here. And uh, and then uh, after my tour of duty at the White House ended, I decided to uh, eject from government and uh, and go off to business school uh, to get MBA with the goal of doing something entrepreneurial in the cybersecurity arena following business school and ended up connecting with a, a group of folks out of the NSA, the National Security Agency, and they were working on NSA's big data platform. So uh, NSA post 9-11, post Patriot Act, collecting a lot of data as a lot of folks read about it uh, via the, the Snowden hacks, and they needed a big data platform to collect all that data at the multi-petabyte scale. Uh, NSA actually started building out that that uh, big data platform using a technology called Hadoop, which was really cool at the time. It's become a little bit less cool with the advent of the, the big cloud providers and much simpler ways of storing and processing data, such as Amazon S3. Anyways, uh, we, we decided to take that, that core technology, uh, that Hadoop-based technology, and spin out a company around it. Now, NSA had done something relatively unusual in that they open-sourced a lot of that core technology to the Apache Foundation. So, you know, we took a model that you know, a lot of folks have done and built a commercial product centered around uh, an open-source project and essentially 
work to commercialize that open source project. And we called that company Squirrel. Uh, the open source project was called Apache Accumulo. So yeah, Squirrel, you know, Squirrel was an interesting set of journeys. We had a, we had a good five-year run with Squirrel, but like a lot of startups, you know, we had to pivot. So we started out Squirrel as an enterprise database management company. You know, Accumulo was and still is a NoSQL database that sits on top of Hadoop. And when we first started out, we're like, okay, we'll build an enterprise version of this open source database with additional security features and management features, and then we'll license that enterprise version. Uh, What we found was a lot of our initial big customers were using that database for cybersecurity use cases. the, The database itself was very well tuned to ingest very large log sets of log files at high volumes and high rates, high ingestion rates, which is you know what you get when you're trying to deal with cybersecurity. There's lots of log files to analyze. And so ultimately we decided, you know, we didn't really want to compete with these database companies, uh, Hadoop companies that are raising hundred millions of dollars. You know, let's focus on a narrow use case and build a full stack around that narrow use case. And that narrow use case was really around cybersecurity analytics. And so our, our goal with Squirrel was taking lots of different types of security logs, things like NetFlow data, firewall logs, Active Directory logs, endpoint security logs, mm-hmm. uh, and fuse them into a security or knowledge graph. So the Accumulo database was a massively scalable graph database. Uh, that's how we used it. And so this idea that we could take these uh, rows and rows of log files and then extract the graph relationships to show how all the entities in those logs, basically users and computers and devices, how they relate to each other. The edges in the graph are the data flows and modeling the data flows between these different entities in the graph. And then run machine learning analytics to look for hacker behaviors in that graph. So looking for things like lateral movement and privilege escalation techniques, and then present that to users in the form of alerts that they need to investigate, and then using the graph relationships to more easily investigate those alerts to piece together an incident. We called that process threat hunting. And threat hunting is a relatively well-known term now inside the security industry. But back in 2015 timeframe, we were really the first company to, to use this concept, use this term. The term threat hunting had been floating around inside the Department of Defense, inside the intelligence community for a number of years. Uh, you know, the Department of Defense had internal hunt teams to look for any nation state actors that had infiltrated Department of Defense networks. But, you know, Squirrel and our marketing messaging really brought that concept of threat hunting to the commercial space. And that's where that's where we finally started getting a bunch of traction. So, you know, we had sort of one major pivot from enterprise database company to security analytics company and then a minor pivot from security analytics to threat hunting, but that was 
that was the big trigger when we saw market product market fit. How long did each pivot take? So like when, when did you start squirrel? And then, you know, when was the, the first pivot? What was the first pivot? And then you go to threat hunting, right? So the pivot from enterprise database company to security analyst, well, first of all, the pivots took too long. <laughs> like this is, this is my number one learning from doing a startup is the quicker that you can hone in on a very specific, relatively narrow use case that delights a handful of customers to the point where they feel like they can't live without your tool, that should be the goal. Like we started, you know, almost building a platform for the start, which is fine if you've raised hundred million dollars, but uh, difficult if you've raised much less like we did. And, um, but the, the pivot, so, you know, we launched Squirrel in August of 2012. We pivoted to security analytics probably about two years later. And then we pivoted from security analytics to this threat hunting messaging and positioning, you know, maybe a year, year and a half after that. Okay. So like from founding to traction, let's call it, where you've identified this need for threat hunting, that, that took a significant amount of time, like three and a half years. And, and then how long did it take to, uh, for, for the next big milestone? Well, the next big milestone was acquisition, which was another year and a half or two years later. Okay. But like looking at that, like about half the time it took for, for all these pivots, right? So pretty quickly. It must have yeah. felt really yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah. No, things things really started moving once we locked in on this threat hunting messaging and positioning. And um you know, it was amazing. A lot of it was very organic. So Google, if you Googled threat hunting, Google started pulling the definition of threat hunting from our website. You know, we owned three of the top six organic Google searches for threat hunting, uh, either directly or through collateral that we had syndicated. You know, we such as, you know, technical white papers about what is threat hunting, how to do it, which are still in circulation today. It's always fun to see those things pop up. So like we had no SEO consultants. We had, you know, very little marketing budget, but we had amazing organic lead generation because we were just writing very differentiated technical marketing content that people loved. And uh, to the point that they're still using it now, you know, six, six years later, and, you know, the other thing that was amazing is that, you know, our webinar attendance, like we had more people attending our webinar at Squirrel, you know, 50 person company at the time, than I did at AWS <laughs> with, you know, tens of thousands of customers. So, you know, finding that differentiated messaging was, was really critical to our, to our, ultimately to our acquisition, which happened at AWS in January, 2018. Well, part of this podcast uh, is is based on like part of doing this podcast is based on like you know talk about something interesting the the interested people are going to find it. I see a lot of times companies really trying to optimize content for SEO, and my experience is that's going to create crappy content, <laughs> and you can have a great SEO 
strategy, not by optimizing for SEO, but for optimizing by amazing, delighting, entertaining, technical, informative content. One thing I loved going through your background was, you know, you, you describe your time at Squirrel as wearing lots of hats. Can you talk about some of the, like the the business function that you had to cover as an entrepreneur and yeah, what some of those roles were? Yeah, I, I did have different hats, different titles during my time at Squirrel and it evolved over time. You know, my initial title was chief operating officer, which Honestly, it was a bit of a catch-all to do whatever what was needed, especially during the very early days where, you know, it was basically myself and an engineering team and we brought on a new CEO and, you know, I, I was really doing whatever what was needed, including sales, marketing, product management, business development, janitorial services, <laughs> you know, whatever was needed. And, um, you know, as we started building out an executive team, a leadership team, I ended up specifically focusing on business development. So partnerships, both technology partnerships and go-to-market partnerships and marketing. And from a marketing perspective, you know, it was the full gamut, you know, lead generation, product marketing, um, events, et cetera. And then, you know, I also spent a lot of time on sales because, you know, especially when you're a small company, it's really the founders that are your most effective sellers. Uh, they know the story better than anyone. And, you know, I, I work on various deals, but then I decide, okay, I want, we don't have any traction in the U.S. government yet, but you know, from our time in the U.S. government, we have lots of the right connections and networks, but selling to the U.S. government is hard. You know, it's 18 to 24 month sales cycles at best. <laughs> and so we weren't really ready to invest in building a federal sales team yet, given those long sales cycles and our need to demonstrate revenue earlier to our investors. So I said, okay, I'll take this as a as sort of my my nighttime job to go try to do federal sales and moonlighted as that. And ended up, you know, we end up getting some some really nice traction inside the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, a few different foreign governments, including the UK Ministry of Defense. And uh, yeah, that ended up being a a, a good, not a majority, but a good significant chunk of of our revenue. But you were able to make headway just kind of like, I'm not saying it was your night job, but you kind of said that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the key to selling inside the federal government is understanding where the right watering holes are and who has money. <laughs> and then also on the flip side, understanding the mechanics and how the government spends money and making sure that you have access and are on or part of the right contract vehicles that enable a government agency to spend money with you. So, you know, needed to take both of those tacks, you know, uh, putting in place relationships with the right government resellers to get on their contract vehicles. And then, you know, a lot of it was reaching out to former colleagues of mine, or in some cases, just reaching out via LinkedIn to people that I knew were decision makers in different departments and agencies, and leveraging like my government background as a sort of initial conversation point to, to then go chat with them. 
I want to talk about getting acquired by a, by a large, uh, can you call it Amazon a corporation? It feels like it's bigger. It's a behemoth, yeah. <laughs> talk about that transition, what it was like getting acquired by such a large company and yeah, just, just take us through the transition and, and maybe um, takeaways from that. Yeah. So, you know, we had a, we had a decision to make. Uh, we either needed to go out and raise another round of capital, or we needed to look at acquisition opportunities. And we decided to actually dual track those options. So, you know, we hired a, a small boutique investment bank, a, a Boston Meridian, who, who I definitely recommend. And we also, you know, started the process of raising another round of financing, which we ended up uh, closing. But, you know, interestingly, I'd say that the primary way that the acquisition came around was not through a banking relationship, but we actually started talking to Amazon as a prospect. <laughs> So the Amazon.com, you know, their internal security team, they had interest in threat hunting and building out security graphs, and they were trying to build something internally. And so, um, you know, they reached out to us about to learn more about what we were doing. And we did a proof of concept with them. We wrote them a quote. I think our, our sales guy <laughs> gave them a quote of like 8 million bucks a year. Uh, which they 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 coughed at, <laughs> and but that gave us an entry point into their corp dev arm to begin discussions there, which you know which our our, our bankers were able to to also facilitate on a parallel track, and you know ultimately the acquisition happened relatively quickly, you know over the course of a couple of months. You know, we went through another proof of concept, this time with the AWS security team, and that went well. The, the new, there was a new VP over at AWS security named Dan Plastina, who had just come over from Microsoft, and you know, he had done a lot of work with the Microsoft security graph and was interested. And so he understand the concept of security graphs and had a vision of doing something similar at AWS. And, uh, you know, that's what, you know, really got us through the door. We had Dan as that champion. You know, we had some validation from these multiple POCs that we did. And, uh, and you know, the rest is history. You know, in terms of joining AWS, you know, the, the deal closed on a Thursday and then we all, you know, the AWS onboarding team showed up into our office on Monday and uh, you know started the process of of teaching us about AWS. You know, for me, it was you know I started working directly for Dan, some special projects, but uh, you know I didn't feel like I had like a really concrete role there. And uh, then the opportunity came up to. Join, to really help launch a new security service at AWS called AWS Security Hub, which had been you know sort of bouncing around inside AWS for a while. It honestly, had been floundering uh, without you know really strong product leadership. And uh, you know, Dan asked me if I wanted to jump in there and take the the product lead for AWS Security Hub. And you know, to be honest, I was a little bit nervous because I actually never really been in a formal product management role. You know, certainly in the early days of Squirrel, I was, 
wearing that hat unofficially, but you know, I'd never been an official product manager, but you know, made the, made the leap and it was awesome. It was such a great experience. You know, I ended up spending four years at AWS as, as the product lead for, for AWS security hub. And, uh, you know, not only did I learn a lot about AWS and, uh, and AWS customers and getting to interact with, you know, fortune 500 CISOs, but I learned so much about how to be a product manager there. Uh, the, AWS and Amazon have a, a very particular way of doing product management, uh, which is oriented around this working backwards process that is focused on development of these documents called PRFAQs, which stands for press releases and frequently asked questions. So it's the, it's the Amazon way of writing a product requirements document instead of writing sort of your standard product requirements document, you actually write a press release and a, and a set of frequently asked questions to accompany that press release. And you write the press release first before like writing a single piece of code to make sure that you've really clearly explained the customer problem, the value proposition that that's being, that the, that's uh, being, so, that uh, is associated with the customer problem. And ultimately the, the user experience associated with that approach and um, you know just a really effective way of simply explaining what you're going to build and you know i've actually now adopted that same approach at sentinel one and uh, we've trained our pms here how to write prfaqs and you know that's that's how we write product requirements now at sentinel one too yeah well um you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, uh, you know, they must have trained you pretty well at Amazon because you're still doing product management these days at Sentinel One. Um, that's what you're. How did that start, though? Tell, like, how long have you been at Sentinel One? How did you? Yeah, so you know, I wasn't really out looking for uh, a new role, but um, uh, Sentinel One CTO Rick Smith, who actually I knew from the Squirrel days, uh, Oracle. He was at Oracle at the time and uh, had Oracle was looking at Essential One from a corp dev perspective, and that's how I met Rick. Uh, but, you know, he reached out and pitched a really cool story like, hey, Essential One, we have this amazing technology foundation to do real-time threat detection in cloud workloads, but we're just getting started, and we want to build out a full cloud security platform. And we need someone like you to, to come in and lead it. And, uh, you know, at AWS, we had scaled Security Hub up from zero to 30,000 customers in three years. And once you get to that scale, you spend a lot of time dealing with tech debt. You spend a lot of time just scaling. <laughs> and uh, I spend a lot of time, you know, dealing with customer issues and I really was excited at the prospect of getting back to ground floor building, you know, building things from, from scratch, which, you know, it's not exactly from scratch at Sentinel One, but uh, it's, uh, you know, we've got, we've got a whole bunch of new product lines that we're getting ready to launch this year. And uh, it's, it's fun to get back at that, you know, pre-release, early launch stage of a company. Right. 
Right. That's like kind of the the DNA of places you worked at in the past, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned something interesting, which is like the, the, the trend towards cloud. Today, it's 2023, the year 2023. Many business organizations have completely migrated computing resources to the cloud. Squirrel, is, is it security, uh, cybersecurity for like on-premise Squirrel, most of our customers with Squirrel were using us for on-prem use cases. You know, the, the, the data sets and security logs that we're ingesting were primarily from on-prem assets, you know, laptops, computers. Right. And then there was this big push, right, over the past, I don't know how many, 10, 15 years to, to put all, uh, to put my, like, computing resources in the cloud. And so, anyway, point being, today a lot of organizations have their compute in the cloud. Other companies are still working to migrate over to the cloud. You mentioned, like, S3 and AWS, all this stuff is, like, we're, we're trending this direction. Threats are also growing in cloud computing, correct? So can you talk about some of the cloud security issues and threats that organizations face as this larger trend towards cloud computing is kind of uh, adopted? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the nice things about my time at AWS is that I did have a, uh, a bird's eye view into the types of security issues and ultimately security incidents that our customers faced in and the root causes of them. So you know, the first thing to remember with cloud security is like, what are people using the cloud for? And people are using the cloud to host web applications or to store sent, store their data, oftentimes sensitive data, oftentimes business critical web applications that are generating you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue or at least tied to it. And so you know, the real goal of cloud security is to defend those applications and the underlying infrastructure that they sit on in the cloud. And so given that, given that, you know, there's these applications in the cloud processing sometimes sensitive data, like, like uh, personal health information or personal identifiable information or credit card information, um, the what adversaries want to do is they want to get in there and either steal that information so that it can, they can resell it on the dark web, or they may want to you know, conduct a ransomware attack and try to extract money from a company to unbrick their application that has been encrypted due to that ransomware incident. And so um, the way that folks are, or adversaries, threat actors, are conducting these attacks, it's usually one of three ways that they're initially getting in. And these are stack ranked in terms of relative frequency. Number one, misconfigured resources, and specifically cloud resources that are made publicly accessible to the internet. So if I am using uh, an S3 bucket or Elasticsearch cluster or another type of cloud database, and I accidentally misconfigure that so that it is accessible from the internet, publicly accessible from the internet when it shouldn't be, you will be breached within minutes. <laughs> there, there, are, there are people continuously scanning the internet and scanning 
AWS IP ranges for any type of resource that is exposed to the internet. And if that resource contains sensitive data or it contains uh, connections to other resources through overly permissive uh, identity roles or, or permissions, you know, that's a, that's a classic way in which folks can get breached in the, in the cloud. Number two, compromise access keys. So inside uh, with cloud providers, there's the concept of long lasting access keys. Like, you know, basically you can think like username and password type access keys uh, and uh, ephemeral access keys. Ephemeral access keys are always the, the, the recommended way of setting up your access using things like IAM roles inside AWS instead of IAM users. Roles have ephemeral access keys. Users have long-lasting access keys. Um, um, then there's of course there's also uh, uh, security key security and access keys associated with APIs. Uh, anyways, the long-lasting access keys can get compromised in a number of ways. They can get stolen. People can hard code them into code and then code repos are made public. Uh, but uh, finding compromise or finding access keys and then using them to get into people's cloud accounts, that, that would be number two on my list. Number three, vulnerable web applications. So like I said, people are, are hosting web applications from cloud providers, those web applications can have exploitable vulnerabilities associated with them. Like maybe you're using a version of WordPress that has a bad or corrupted plugin that can be exploited. Maybe your form on your, uh, on your application is subject to SQL injection. Um, and there's a number of you know, ways to protect applications uh, from these types of vulnerabilities. You can scan the application vulnerabilities. You can put a web application firewall in front of them to limit the things that, uh, that can be done against them. But uh, once you have gotten in through that front door, you can also then move laterally and, and, and conduct various types of, of cloud attacks. Uh, but yeah, those are, those are the, the, usually the three root causes associated with, with cloud incidents. So it's kind of like one, you left a door open, two, somebody got a key, or three, they went right through the front door. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe broke a window in the, in the process. <laughs> All right. Next, can you talk about this uh, this hybrid cloud approach? It implies that services and applications that can be hosted are configured locally and can be migrated to a cloud. Can you talk about the proliferation of hybrid and multi-cloud security words that I'm not sure I should be using? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, let me break these down a little bit. So what does multi-cloud mean? Multi-cloud means that you're actually using multiple cloud providers. So maybe you're using AWS and Azure to host workloads. Now, usually it's not like the same application that's spread across multiple cloud providers. Usually what it is is that you are picking one cloud provider for one type of workload and another cloud provider for another type of workload because... You really like their capabilities in a particular area, like maybe you're using 
Azure for like your machine learning, but then you're using AWS for everything else, um, just as an example. The hybrid cloud, what that refers to is you're running some of your stuff in the cloud, in like a public cloud environment, and then you're running some of your stuff in your own on-prem environment, which could be a private cloud environment. Now, where this gets really interesting from a security perspective is the idea that security incidents can actually start on-prem and then move into the cloud or vice versa. So, you know, right now I would say that most security solutions are relatively stovepiped. Like they only focus on cloud security. They only focus on on on-prem security. And because of that stovepipe focus, they potentially miss these pivots between on-prem and cloud environments uh, that limit your ability to really truly understand the full scope of an attack or a full scope of an incident. Like as an example, I could be sitting on my laptop and I might accidentally enter credentials into a, like a phishing style email or to a, a link to a website link from a phishing style email. And uh, an adversary then might use those credentials to, to, to log into my machine. From there, they may do like a privilege escalation technique to, uh, to get admin credentials or find admin credentials on my, on my machine. Those admin credentials could be cloud admin credentials. And so then I log into the cloud and maybe create a new user for myself that has permissions to go and do bad things in the cloud. And so from here, I've just pivoted from your laptop into the cloud environment and am executing nefarious actions there. So that's like, this is still a relatively new concept of like, how do you put together those pieces of a larger storyline into a unified view that cuts across uh, on-prem and cloud environments? Is that why there's an interest in cloud-native application protection platforms? So cloud-native application protection platforms, this is a term coined originally by Gartner, but to use pretty widely throughout the industry now. And in addition to sort of the idea of stovepipes between on-prem security and cloud security, just inside cloud security, there's lots of specialization. And the idea of cloud-native application protection platform is to begin merging and unifying various cloud security tools into a more unified platform itself. So in order to like completely and fully defend the cloud, you need application security tools that can ensure the integrity and the security of the code associated with the applications that you're deploying to the cloud. You need security tooling to look at your development and deployment pipelines for that code. Basically, um, when it is codes developed, it goes through a series of tests, moving from beta to production environments. Like that pipeline itself needs to be secure. So you may have heard of like the solar winds attack where Russia injected code into the solar winds 
uh, code base via their their development and deployment pipelines. Like that's really keyed in on the idea that that pipeline itself needs to be secure. And then once you deploy that code into your cloud environment, you need to you know make sure that the outer perimeter of that cloud environment is secure by putting in place you know network firewalls and web application firewalls. Uh, you need to also be looking at the infrastructure that that code is running on and monitoring that that infrastructure. So like the virtual machines, the uh, containers, uh, the databases, the identities that you're using, monitoring all those for both misconfigurations and for anomalies or signs of adversary behavior. And the, the, the vision for CNAP is uniting all these things together so that you can have clear line of sight from you know, that piece of malware that's sitting on a machine in your cloud environment all the way back to the initial code repo that contains the instructions about how that, that machine should be deployed so that you can go back to the beginning and make sure that you know, any misconfigurations in that initial deployment code are cleaned up. So it's protecting the whole surface area? Yeah, the, your entire cloud surface area. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what okay, that's, you said cloud. I wasn't sure, but it, it is still. Yeah, CNAP is, is cloud focused, wow. cloud native, cloud native application protection platform. Okay. Next, can you unpack what Zero Trust as a organizational security philosophy is? Yeah, Zero Trust is a, another one of those buzzwords that. I think it's because it has some ambiguity to it, it gets confused because it can mean different things. And, you know, it's surprising to see the concept of zero trust actually baked into a recent executive order that the White House put out. It's like one of the first times I saw like a security buzzword in an executive order. But at its core, zero trust means that your location, and I say your, that could be a an identity, like a user, or it could be a machine, but your location in the network does not determine what type of access you have. So historically, security was oftentimes thought of as like a crunchy outer layer and then a soft gooey center, (laughs) meaning like if you're able to get permissions into a network, you could sort of go in and do whatever you wanted. You could, as long as you got through that outer layer, that network boundary, you could do whatever you wanted. It allowed, you know, adversaries, once they got through that outer network layer, they were able to move laterally very easily throughout the network. The idea of zero trust is that it doesn't matter if you're in the network already, you still need to have continuous Reauthentication and reauthorization as if you were an unknown entity. So, like when I think about zero trust, I really think about the idea of continuously verifying permissions and continuously verifying identities. Now, there's other ways to break this down further. So, I can talk about zero trust in terms of 
user to machine. So like one example of zero trust is as it relates to the cloud is if I am logging into AWS from a machine that I've never logged into AWS before or from an IP range that I've never logged in before that I shouldn't be logging in from, you know, you can step up authentication requirements. Maybe you need additional ways to verify that person before you let them log in. That's sort of like one concept of zero trust and one way that zero trust is sometimes talked about and this idea of step up authentication when a user is trying to log into something and they need to further verify if that user has, is valid to log into that person, into that, into that machine, into that system. The other type of zero trust is more like machine to machine. And so that is, there's, there's different aspects of that, but a big piece of it is ensuring that your networks are properly segmented. Sometimes we'll say uh, micro segmentation is a is a term that's sometimes used. So instead of having like one big boundary, you know, begin to segment your your network into smaller pieces, you know, based on your applications, your microservices, so that you know if someone was able to get into one part of the network, they're not able to easily move laterally. You know, there's network boundaries within the network as well. Um, you know, uh, a more detailed view of that is ensuring that machines can only communicate with machines in certain ways, you know, through certain ports, through certain with certain protocols, and really like restricting down the communication paths in a fine-grained way. A last piece of that is re-authenticating the machines to each other every time data is passed between them. Like at AWS, you know, if AWS or any cloud provider, like basically everything's an API call. And so a big part of zero trust, you know, with cloud providers is that like every API call needs to be re-authenticated uh, uniquely. So, you know, the, the concept of zero trust, I'd say in a lot of ways is like natively baked into the architectures of cloud providers because every API call needs to be re-authenticated. But yeah, it's, it's one of those terms that, because that, like I said, because it means a bunch of different things, it gets used in different ways. Can you just first, what, what is a SAAS software as a service security posture and how does SSPM work? Basically SaaS security posture management. Oh yeah, yeah. So SSPM, SaaS Security Posture Management, uh, it's a relatively new concept. It builds on this idea of cloud security posture management. So cloud security posture management really is, you know, it's actually what I did at AWS Security Hub. And it is continuously looking at the configurations of all of your cloud resources and making sure that those uh, are aligned to security best practices. So have you turned on all your logging? Have you encrypted your resources? Are your identities least privileged? SaaS security posture management is also looking for alignment to security best practices, but you know it's really looking at your various SaaS tools and whether you've configured those 
in alignment with security best practices. Yeah, just as like a super simple example, like if you're using Slack, have you turned on multi-factor authentication for your users? Uh, things like that. Well, that's kind of that's kind of where we'll wrap up the cloud security trends section. Really, I just got one more kind of question or idea for you, Eli. You've had an interesting career so far. You've held multiple positions like director, management, and you've worked in government. So what's the most important thing you've learned over that time? Or if you have any thoughts on kind of like leadership and business, what's one lesson you might have in, in that area specifically? You know, I think my my biggest lessons learned on leadership is primarily around leading by example. Um, so, you know, as a, as a manager and a leader, um, I think the, the way that I've been successful is essentially like setting the pace. And even this is really important as a startup leader as well. I mean, the culture that you create as a startup leader is really based on how people observe you behaving. So, you know, if folks see you going the extra mile to, um, it's not just about the hours that you put in, but it's also about like attention to detail. You know, I had a really great manager at AWS who gave like the most complete thorough written feedback that I'd ever received um, in any of my jobs. So like every document that I received, it wasn't just sort of like a few bullet points about like how it could be improved, but like very detailed paragraph level thoughts on ways it could be improved. And, you know, that level, that attention to detail, you know, carried over through the whole team and, you know, becomes the standard, you know, that's sort of the expectation that everyone does now. So, you know, setting the pace, setting the standards by, by, by showing your teams about, you know, hey, I did it this way. This is like, if, if I can do it, you all can do it too. Um, I think that's a, a really effective way of, of leading and managing. I love that answer. I said that was the last question. I had one more for you. Why'd you name the company Squirrel with no vowels? What's the name? What's, what's the reason behind <laughs> the name there? <laughs> uh, Gosh, vowels are really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think squirrel with no vowels, squirrel.com with no vowels costs about $5,000. I think squirrel with the vowels was going to cost us between fifty dollars and $100,000. So <laughs> that's the short of it. You know, why, why the animal squirrel? Oh, I don't know. Um, the... Uh, the, the number one cause of cybersecurity outages is actually squirrels eating through electrical wires. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So that, uh, that, that played into our thinking there. What's like one funny story from the White House or just an experience you'd like to share from, from that time? Oh, gosh. Let's see here. Well, I worked with this a really amazing person who was at, from the CIA. And he was, uh, he was also in the cybersecurity directorate within the National Security Council staff. But, but, you know, he had, he was quite experienced. He had, you know, basically a 30 year CIA career. And so I, I just, 
latched myself to him and tried to absorb as much as I could from him during my time there. And uh, we went to uh, New York City to brief uh, a Wall Street CEO and his CISO on a particular security issue. And, you know, this, uh, uh, this colleague of mine, you know, he had an interesting style about him. The best I could describe is it was sort of a little Ted Kaczynski-esque. <laughs> in that, you know, he had like a longer hair, he had a beard, he had this like cardigan sweater that he wore that it might have had holes or patches in the, uh, in the elbows, but was probably the most brilliant person I have ever met, <laughs> let alone anywhere, <laughs> not even just in government. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. Double, double P, I think he had double PhD from MIT. Anyways, we were waiting in the lobby, waiting to be let up to, to go do this briefing and security came over and tried to escort him out of the building because they thought he was a homeless guy. He, uh, he, he showed them some ID and they uh, quickly backed off. <laughs> That's a good one. Great reminder. Don't judge a book by its cover. All right. Well, thank you for sharing, Eli. Uh, before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you? Or if you have any uh, you know, calls to action for the audience here, uh, what would you like them to do? Well, let's see here. Um, you know, th- certainly go check out Sentinel One, uh, my current company. Uh, we, we actually just published a really cool annual report. It's called our Watchtower Annual Report. It summarizes all of the major cybersecurity trends that our managed hunting teams have seen across our customer base. So it has some cool statistics and details about you know, the various types of threats and malware that we've seen across our customers. Cool. All right. Uh, well, thank you for sharing. Uh, if we can link to that in the show notes, we will. Uh, we will end the show there. If you liked it, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating, especially if it's five stars. Eli, thank you for joining the show today. It was definitely an interesting one that I will remember. We appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you.